Good morning. Hey, Karen. Come on in. All right. So let's see what, what we've got going here. I have got so many charts. Now, one of the things that happened, I realized after we got into the homework, and I'm sure you did too, is how'd it go? Yay. Good for you, Karen. Another praise. That is fantastic. So Karen got her house. Angie's got her house sold and bought and settled and she can't find her Bible study stuff, but she will. <laughs> she lost, it was lost in action. Her, yeah. Yeah. Um, here, I will give you this until I need it. I may take it back, but that'll give you something to follow. So you'll have the basics of what would have been in your homework. Okay. Um, yeah, you can answer. Well, and I'm not using that as my teaching chart. That's just for my knowledge in case I have a question. Real quick, there is food downstairs now. Oh, good. Yay. Food. Who brought food in? Oh, good, Karen. Thank you so much. Good. All right. Um, okay. So last week we looked at um, basically two kingdoms to, in order to try to pull this all together. What I walked you through last week is kind of what she had you doing in your homework this week. Did all of you notice that? And did you, did it confuse you that she was asking you those? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I can see how that would be a problem because I had already settled it for you. Mm -hmm. And then she comes back with these questions. Well, there are three views and it could be this and it could be this. Right. But here's, here's the final thing. She asked you one last question at the end of your homework, uh, let's see, I think it, let me see what day it was. Day three, close of day three. She said, now beloved student, conclude which kings are represented in each of the Daniel passages. And she, and she blocks off Daniel 8, 9 to 14, Daniel 8, uh, 23 to 26. And then she jumps into Daniel 11. Uh, 21 to 35. And then the last one was Daniel 11, 36 to 45. Very, very interesting to me is the fact that how these teachers or pastors come up with various interpretations on this. How convinced are you that you now know exactly which ones are in what part of history? How did you conclude which of those Daniel passages were past history and which are yet future? How did you conclude that? The timeline. All you have to do is a timeline, guys. You mark out the timeline. When you get into Daniel chapter 8, and, it's, and it tells you who the two kingdoms are that is being spoken of. The first one was Persia, which gets put, put down. And then it goes on to what? Greece. So everything in chapter eight is what? Greece. It's, I mean, it's a no brainer, right? Okay. And in, in the representation that's given to you in the visualization anyway of it, of chapter eight, it, it tells you that the, that Greece is represented by a shaggy goat, right? Do you remember last week I started you off in the first column and I said, tell me how Greece has been represented in all of these different visions. Do you remember what they are? What was chapter uh, chapter one, the statue, right? What part of that statue represented Greece? 
belly and thighs, right? Belly and thighs. Okay. And then the, the, uh, in chapter seven, Daniel's vision of the four beasts coming up out of the sea, which one of those was Greece? The leopard, the third kingdom, right? And then, then when you get to chapter eight, how is it represented? How is Greece represented? A shaggy goat, right? My purple shaggy goat. All right. So the picture then is given that there's a first king that comes out and he's, he's represented by one large horn, right? What happens to him very shortly after he arises? He dies. So he, he rises up on the earth. This is Alexander the Great. He dies and it shows in the vision the horn is broken off. What happens after that? Four horns come up in its place. And then through Daniel 11, you go through this whole bantering of back and forth civil wars, internal wars of Greece, north and south, north and south of what? Israel, because Israel is the subject of all the things that we're looking at, right? Because the, the vision that have been given to Daniel over and over and most specifically very clarified in Daniel chapter 9. And if you cannot remember anything else, I highly recommend you, you memorize that Daniel 9, 24 to 27 in your head, because that particular prophecy is the catalyst. It's like the, it's like the, the hub of everything else that kind of spins off of it. It gives you your timeline where everything is anchored, right? And so um, after, when you get into Daniel 11, then the whole thing is this north and south, it's all north and south of the Jews because Daniel 9 tells us, Daniel, these things pertain to who? Your people and your holy city. Now, who is that? Israel. <laughs> Daniel's people, the Jews, and his holy city, Jerusalem. So you, it, you cannot mess that up at all. Now you know for sure everything that's referencing the saints and everything that's referencing your people and everything that's referencing the time of the location of the place, like things like the beautiful land, you now know it's all those are references to Israel, right? Okay, so in Daniel 11, north, south, north, south, north, south, and then you hit this one despicable king who, who rises up. If you are working out the details of that and making the lists on it, when you hit um, 1121 through 35, it makes this, this switch where it shows you that he comes out of something, right? Read that for me, verse, um, I think it's 35. Oh, no, I'm not 35, I'm sorry, 20. In, cha in um, chapter 11, verse 20, it says, in his place, that's a king of the north, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Now, where is that? Israel. Yet within a few days, he will shatter, though not in anger, nor in battle. In other words, he gets sick and dies. And then it says in verse 21, in his place. Okay, his who? He was a king of the north. What is the north? It was the area of Syria, north of Israel. And what kingdom are we still in? Greece. So it's not hard. If you just stop and timeline this and start plugging it in where, where it tells you to put it in, yes, it takes time. Yes, it's, you know, it's time consuming. But once you do it that way, I do not know why commentaries and pastors argue 
over who are these kings in chapter eight and chapter 11. So you tell me, how did you conclude when you answered her question in, in, um, on day four or three, whatever it was? It was the last part of day three on page 86. Daniel 8, 9 to 14 is what kingdom? Greece. Greece. Okay. Daniel 8, 23 to 26 is what kingdom? Greece. Daniel 11, 21 to 35 is what kingdom? Greece. Okay. So, and it's absolutely, to me, not even possible to argue about it if you just lay it out, plug it in. It tells you out of his kingdom, from him comes this other king. And you're still speaking of the, the, king, the kingdom of Greece. You haven't switched kingdoms yet. He's already told you in chapter 8, uh, I think it was verse 20 and 21, that the purple shaggy goat, mine is purple, is, is Greece. <laughs> I know I colored mine purple. I can't see him any other way now. He's, no, purple wasn't in there. <laughs> that I'm adding to the scriptures. Don't listen to me. <laughs> okay. So once you get the, that part, now comes Daniel 11, 36 to 45. Now this is probably the trickiest part of what we, we would need to do as far as uh, apologetically trying to help someone banter through. How do you know 36 switches, right? What would be some of your points that you would point out to a friend if you were going to say to them verse 36 to 45 is not Greece any longer we've now made a switch to a new kingdom how do you know that and what are some of your clues there are several things in there the biggest one that I got is when I was going through it I stopped marking so I was like I'm confused all of a sudden but when I got down here because we were in the king of the north that's what we were talking about yes and then in 40 you're like the king of the south is going to collide with him and the king of the north is also <clears throat> going to collide so then he can't be the king of the north if right so then who is he so then who is he perfect chris that's perfect <laughs> so she's basically saying it in that uh what verse was that in verse 40, the king of the north collides with him. The king of the south collides with him. So he is not the north nor the south, which is what was being spoken of in verses 3 to 35. So you, you have switched to a new king totally once you, you make that uh, point, once you realize that that's what's been said, okay? Also in verse 40, it says, at the end time. Yes. And that's the biggest deal because there's an end time king and there's very good so actually it it actually makes that statement twice in verse 40 but even in 36 30, well 35 was another point because i and i do like 35 a lot but what does it say in 40 or 36 rather the very first word in 36 is then so that then in this in the flowing of this thought the context it's a time indicator. So you should put a clock on it. It's, it's because he's saying, then this is going to happen. He's not saying at the same time or, or during his reign or out of him comes or from him appears another, you know, whatever, which is what had been said uh, in Daniel 11 before verse 21. It kept telling you out of the king of the north comes this and then out of then he goes, he dies. Now out of him comes another one, a despicable one, right? 
but here it doesn't say that. It says then, and then it begins to speak about an, another uh, kingdom. Yes. Well, if you look back at what the then is referring to, it's until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Very good. Okay. That's like point number three. So we've made now, this is going to be our third point. Verse 35, as Kathleen is saying, and if you didn't highlight it very boldly, you need to mark it and highlight it very clearly because he's speaking of all these things in verse 3 to 35, and he's speaking about all these kings, north and south, and all the wars that are taking place, which are affecting Israel, who's right in the heart of it all. They're basically, all these bullies around Israel, every time they get into some kind of an uh, altercation with somebody that they're trying to uh, make, steal power from, right? They're trying to uh, increase the power of their reign. When they don't get their way, they take it out on poor little Israel as they're going back home, you know? So they're on their way back home. And they're going, well, I couldn't destroy Egypt. So I'll just, you know, give uh, Israel a black eye, right? That's kind of what you see happening here. So after you get all that bantering, north, south, north, south, north, south, when you hit verse 36, you don't really see north, south, except for in verse 40, where it, as Kristen very well pointed out, it just shows you he's not the king of the north and he's not the king of the south. Whoever this king is, he's different from those two who have been the, the subject of address from three to 35. So now we're in a new with a new king who's not north or south, he's something different. So that's one of the other clues. Here in, at the close of 35 then, which is three to 35, is the kings that are north and south of, of Israel. It's giving you all the information about them battling. But then it says, but uh, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them pure until the end time. Because what? It is still to come at the appointed time. So what he's just said there is, Everything I've just told you in verse 3 to 35 is not the end time. But what has he called it? Yes. And, and as he is, I think it might be in chapter 8 where he says, these things are not the end time, but they what? They pertain to the time of the end. What does it mean to pertain to? It has to do with it. It's something like it, but it's not it. It pertains to the time of the end. That's what you, what are those verses? Does somebody have those? Okay, 819 is one of them. And 817. Okay. So if you go back and look at those in chapter eight, which is again, speaking of the same king from Daniel 11, um, 21 to 35, that end time king, He's saying it, that is not yet the end, but it, he pertains to the time of the end that's yet to come. And then it even goes on to say, for the time of the end is yet to come, right? Okay, so those are some really good apologetics. I, let me see if I've got any others on here that I did not hear. Um, um, it's subtle, but in verse 41 of 11. Did you notice he says also? He will also enter the beautiful land, meaning just like all those other kings before him, he's also going to do it. So he's not the king of the north, he's not the king of the south, but he's a king who is also going to do similar things. So I 
picked up, it's not quite as uh, dramatic of a point, but it is a subtle point. And once you, you kind of pick it out, you go, oh yeah, it does say that, right? It tells us he will also be an aggressor against Israel, but he's not the same aggressor that was mentioned before him, okay? Um, now, the, the other thing is history. What does history do for us when we go in, as we have now come to see through the things that Kay gave to us in those readings that we had as our, as our, in our appendix, right? What did history show us about the kind of the reading of chapter 11? Yeah, so you could go in there and you can see, Kay mentions that even in her, her Bible, the inductive Bible study Bible, that there's a, a chart in there about these Ptolemies and the Seleucids, right? The king of north and south and their reigns and when they did all these things. And it's a beautiful little chart in there. Very helpful. The great thing is, is you literally can go into all those pronouns and references of alliances that are, are, that are made and different kinds of wars that take place. And you can plug in names. He did this, he did this, she did this, they did that, then they did, then that didn't work, then this came about, then he died, then someone else did something, right? I mean, and you can actually plug in names, but when you hit verse 36, what happens? You can't plug anything in because we don't really have any, any names that fit those particular things that are happening. One of the things that's very interesting is the, the rather small horn who is the one who's spoken of in 21 to 36 of 11. At the end of his life, he, he dies, right? But how is it distinct from what happens to the, the other king at, from 11 to 45? In 45, it says that uh, he will come to his end and no one will help him. Yeah, so he comes to his end and no one will help him. So it shows you that... Um, with the closing of that first king, he, he, although he dies, he comes to his end also. The other one, when you merge it with all the other factors that we've been given, not just in 11, but also in chapter 7, for instance, in chapter 7, what follows that particular king who is uh, starting 36 to 45? What follows his kingdom? No, the end time king, what follows his kingdom, God's kingdom. So when you, if you have actually plugged this into a timeline, you hit verse 36 to 45 and you say, there really is no history that fits. Okay. So this looks to me is at the end. We've also talked about other reasons why we've given like three or four apologetics to say, no, this is not the king of the North or South. This is not Greece. This is apparently another king, right? Okay, so once you plug it in at the end, then you go in and you gather all your other information on what, where he would fit, which would be after, right? After Greece somewhere. So it has to fall into the next kingdom. And now we know by going back to Daniel 2, right? Daniel 7. Even Daniel 9 gives us a little bit of it as well. You can go back in then and you can say, well, what happens after that king? is the coming of the kingdom of God. Has that happened? So if it were the king of Greece and, he, we, and that was what was being spoken of, where would you and I be right now? 
in the kingdom of God. <laughs> and are we? No. <laughs> now we have the kingdom of God living in our hearts, but there is no physical, literal kingdom of God. Now, with that statement, this brings up another thought that came to me this week when I was doing some other research. Um, I, I listened to a, like a panel discussion, and they were talking about anti-Semitism that's going on right now in the church today, in the, not in the world, in the church. And they're saying, how does this happen? How do we get to a place where the church does not understand nor value nor respect the position or place of Israel in the coming events of history? Pardon? Okay, and why? What does the leadership do? There you go. It has to do with your, yes, has to do with your doctrines. It has to do with your biblical worldview. It has to do with how you interpret scripture. If you look at scripture as uh, all allegorical, which many, many churches do, they don't see it as literal. Phys they don't do what we do, timeline, it, plug it in in history and say, these are the concrete facts, right? So what happens then is, as has happened even in our ancient history, and had we been born many, many years ago, we may very likely have bit off on that lie too, because before 1948, what was not in existence yet? Israel, they had not yet been returned to their land and put back on their land, right? And they're not fully on their land and the fullness of God's promise to them is still yet to, to be future. But he has, what is it they call it? The fig tree has, is the buds are back on the fig tree, right? He's beginning to put them back on their land and he's beginning to start this process. And he, this is what he promised in Ezekiel. It's what he promised in, uh, I think it's Zechariah, right? And, he, and he, he promised it to the people that uh, one day I'm going to bring you back to the land and I'm going to I'm going to settle you there. And then he goes on to tell them everything all the way to the end of the age, what he's going to ultimately do for them. But if you don't believe that's true, literally, what happens is we substitute Israel for the church. And we say all the blessings that God promised Israel are for us now because they crucified him. Sadly, Martin Luther preached this one big, and that's sad. We love Martin Luther because he gave us salvation by grace and grace alone and we the birthing of the protestant church came about we went back a little bit more mainstream more more traditional to the early church's faith system by shedding what uh the roman catholicism was teaching right but he was still wayward on a few things which just goes to show you that no human being is a perfect teacher or or has full knowledge and historically in time and place, it matters. Martin Luther did not have the benefit that we have. We see Israel back on their land, right? But if your, if your doctrines are in error because your belief about, for instance, what do you believe is true about the word of God itself? How many people do not believe that the world was created in six literal days and that God, and that God rested on the seventh. Most people don't. What do they say about that? It's not literal. That, that it's all symbolic. Because actually it took how long to create the earth? 
well, it used to be thousands of years, and it became that millions of years, and it became billions of years. I mean, they just keep making time the bigger, the bigger factor. Um, when, yes, oh, duh, again, yes. Okay. They use the passes though that a day is like a thousand years, but they use that to. to yes, they do, and they use it in error. Why is that using that one in error? Because, like, like Andrew said, it's a day. Say that again, Kathleen. It's allegor. It's an allegorical statement. He is actually saying to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's, and he's speaking about what subject in that verse, the patience of God, which brings salvation. So he's saying for God, his patience is so great that a day is like a thousand years. It's an, it's an allegorical statement or a imagery statement. He's trying to put into your mind the concept of how big and how long and how great God's patience is to bring all mankind into salvation, right? He desires that all men be saved, right? So if you, if you do not, number one, have your doctrines correct. Number two, understand what you know about the word of God, what it is and how it was received by us. How do we get the word of God and, and how do we take it and how do we interpret it, right? And if you, once you get to that place of saying, okay, it's God breathed, it's 100% correct because God wrote it and he and it, it, it's not one word is in error and God fulfills every one of his words. If you believe it's literal and it's God breathed, then the next step is, is, okay, now you need to study it in that manner. And as you're looking at the things that you're reading, you're interpreting them and understanding that when God says Israel, he's going to do these things for, do not try to substitute the church in there. Because that is that replacement theology, right? Where people want to replace the church with Israel. And you end up with really bad inter interpretations or understandings of scripture. Your doctrine gets so messed up. So some of these pastors and teachers that are out there, and I'm not trying to be critical of them, but I'm just warning, you know, the household of faith that you are personally responsible to number one, know what your doctrines are, right? And hold fast to them. That's why... In, in, in by, uh, inductive Bible study, we have those two pillars. One is never violate your known doctrines. And the other is let your immediate context rule for interpretation. The only way you can do the interpretation correct though is to know what your, in, your environment is. So when we did Daniel and way back at the beginning of all this, we had to set the full context of it. Who are they? Why are they there? Which required going back and saying, oh my gosh, Ezekiel, right? how they got into their captivity or go back to Deuteronomy or go back to any of the kings and prophets for that matter. Look at how they failed God, how they re rejected God's word and, and failed to keep the covenant that they were supposed to keep. And you can see where God says over and over is you have profaned my holy name. And therefore now I'm going to cast you off the land. It's exactly what he told them that he would do. If you and I don't hold fast our known doctrines and then know what that context is, we're going to fail every time. And I do believe that is why there's so many commentaries that are all over the place on this. And this is where I hope, if nothing else, for those of you who are new in this, you've learned a valuable lesson about not really trusting those commentaries fully. I'm not saying don't go to them and don't read them to give yourself extra stuff to chew on a little bit. 
but only do that after you have done all the basics first. Set your context, figure out what your author's purpose is for writing that particular book and do at least enough study in it that you, you're beginning to get that flow of understanding. Look how long it took us to get into Daniel. We were probably in, I would say really chapter seven before we really had the, a good grip on everything. That was uh, what, 12 studies, tw right? 12 weeks of study before you start bouncing into commentaries. So those are just some basics about what I think we've learned so far in, I guess in Daniel on the whole, but also, you know, as we're about to go into Revelation, we're gonna be facing a lot of these same issues where a lot of people do not see things as, a, as being a literal fulfillment. Yes, it's a vision, so it's symbolically represented, but is there a literal application? Is there going to be a literal fulfillment of what's being told to us? What have we seen from Daniel? How has Daniel proven that to us, that that is, in fact, it's, there is going to be a literal fulfillment of it? How, how has Daniel shown that to us? Yeah. Yeah. So if they don't, first off, you have to understand that the first, what, six, seven chapters of Daniel are historical. Mm -hmm. So then why don't you believe what's going to happen in the next books of the whole Bible? Right. Why can you make that flip and say, well, because right. Israel's not on their land, they never Okay, so you bring up another really good point. That is, there needs to be continuity in the way that you handle things. You can't do a flip-flop on yourself. You can't say in one moment it's, it means it literally, but in the next it means it uh, figuratively. I, I always say that about the people when you study the book of Genesis. I mean, there's so many things about Genesis that we take as literal, and yet they want to say the days are not. And I'm like, well, how can you make that flip from one thing to another? If that's the if that's the case, then who gets to pick and choose what's literal and what's not? Right. Who of us in this room is so well informed? And I almost feel like Job. Tell me this. <laughs> Tell me that. <laughs> if you're so smart, Job, right? And what God has done is He's given us a written word, and He's He's given us some. Uh, he's used um, the language that we have, and He's used He's used the form of writings that we have that we understand poetry and history and prophecy the visions and so forth and he's those are all things that are locked in there i i am fully convinced god gave all those to us right it, to the unsaved world and the saved world alike but so that we would have a boundary that says when you're in this kind of literary form this is how you handle it. And when you and I are going through the book of Matthew and we hit parables, we have to remember we're no longer in literal, we're in parable. But parables do teach a literal truth, but you have to handle the imagery of them or the, or the expression of what he's, the point that he's trying to make is what you have to draw out of them, right? So you have to handle each of your literary forms according to the literary form that you're in. God gave those to us to give us some absolutes, basically, some things that you can absolutely count on so that you can't go waywardly. Does that make sense? Right. And consistent. I mean, one of the things you're taught as a parent is be consistent. Always be consistent with your kids because if you keep flip-flopping on them, 
if I count to three and you don't obey, you know, I'm going to pull this car over and we're going to turn around. And, and then you never do any of those things, right? Because you're on a your doctor appointment is in five minutes. And so it doesn't matter what your kid does in the backseat. You're still going. So you make false threats. Well, that inconsistency causes your children to be confused and frustrated and fearful, right? In a lot of ways, instead of giving them some real absolutes, children who have absolutes in their lives, and I'm not talking about sternness to the crazy degree, but absolutes give kids stability. That is how God teaches you and I through his word. He gives us some things that are, have absolute stabilities, how you handle the word of God, how you interpret it, what you think about the word of God. Developing your doctrines is the most essential thing for a Christian to do. And that's what we do here in precept. We develop your doctrines. Now we are learning a, a, an eschological doctrines. We are laying out the times of the signs. And one of the things I started this whole conversation with was, you know, what happens when you don't believe the word of God is, is literal truth? Well, then you substitute. And that, and that panel that I listened to, they were going back and forth and saying, well, if you don't have a correct doctrine concerning the word of God, then your doctrines about things like Israel get all messed up. And then you can come up with wrong interpretations. And that's where you have so much going on in the commentaries. This is why Kay gave you three choices. Is it this, is it this, or is it this? And you're going, oh, wait a minute. I thought I had it straight. <laughs> well, the other thing about doctrine that we really have to remember, I think in Revelation study, is that Daniel 9 tells us that the end times is for the Jews. Right. It is not about right. the churches, the believers. Right. It's about the Jewish people. Right. I found out this week that I'm probably a dispensationalist which I've heard that word before, but I didn't really know what it meant. But dispensationalism is understanding history through phases of times that are allegated for specific works of God. So, I mean, there's the time in the, with the, at the beginning, the garden and Adam and Eve. And then there's each of the major prophets, um, uh, Abraham and Moses and Noah, and all those are not in order, but you know, like that. Then you come to the Christ, right? The church. Then you're going to come to the next big age, which is tribulation, Right. But what does God say about the church in, in Romans? I, that passage in Romans 11 is so good. Let's see if I can find it. Um, I don't have it here. 11, uh, 20. Is it 20 or 21? Somebody have that handy? Where he begins to... Well said because of unbelief. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail in severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in this goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Okay, so this is just showing how God is impartial, and He and salvation to anyone is in the same same way. It by faith, right? You come in. Abraham believed God; and it was credited to him as righteousness. He did not come in because he obeyed the law. The law wasn't even in place during the days of Abraham. It wasn't until later when the law was given to Moses. Okay, so go on, okay. because then you're you're going to get into the part I I was actually looking for. <laughs> 
you can, or if you were cut off out of the olive, olive tree, which is wildly wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into this cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your understanding that blindness is part in that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. Okay. Blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. If you have a dispensational view, which I apparently I do, what it's saying is, <laughs> yeah, I know it's a, such a revolution for me. Well, I mean, some of these words are big words, right? <laughs> and they're not like words we banter around in our everyday language. But if, if I read that the way I see it, and actually, if you keep going, it, it shows several of the dispensations, but it's saying the church is going to be dealt with first. And when he's done dealing with the church, then he goes on. Now read the next verse that follows that. Because now he's going to go on. He says, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then what? And so all Israel, will be saved. All Israel shall be saved. Now, this is speaking all Israel, the nation. This is not talking about individual salvation. This, now we're speaking about a national salvation for a people because God said all Israel shall be saved and he's going to put them back on their land. They shall be his people. They shall be his people and he shall be their God. And he's speaking about a nation. And this particular nation is going to be one who's been purged, purified and refined as we've seen in Daniel. So there's individual salvation that will take place for the individual Jew in that last time. Once that's accomplished on an individual basis, then he will take that totality of those people, put them back on their land, and he will save all Israel. Now all Israel is back on their land, and the saved nation is there. Okay. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, election they are beloved for the sake of the Father. The gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. Yes. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He is, he, and, and he says the gifts and the calling for the sake of the fathers. Again, another dispensation, a period of time when he worked through the fathers, through the prophets, through the kings, right? So if you understand that each, each time frame has a purpose, then it's going to be very easy for you to understand that during the days of tribulation, God is dealing with Israel, the nation. That's another very good apologetic reason for us to understand the church is not here for that because he's taking them through a time of tribulation to purify and refine them. Do we, the church, need to be purified and refined? Well, we could be, we could be refined, obviously, but do we need that purification, which is salvation? No, we already have that, right? And when we get into Revelation part one, there are going to be promises that are given to quote the overcomers and that that one of those promises in in those letters is that we will not have to endure those tribulations and that we will be rescued out of them okay is that it am i at the end of that um, well then it gives the, the scripture um, oh yeah read that one so the deliverer will come out of zion and he will turn away ungodlessness <laughs> Okay, did you hear that? He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. Now that's speaking of Israel, the nation. Okay. So this is my, my, my covenant with them, where I take away their sins. 
Okay, now what verse was that? Where did you end? Yeah, it was 27. Okay, so going all the way through verse 27. So it started though around 25, maybe? 24 or 25 through 27. There's like three or four verses in there that cover the fact that what God is doing is right now he's dealing with us, the Gentile. And as soon as the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, meaning into faith, meaning the church. Last week, I had a gap in time, remember, on that fourth beast. There was a gap in time. That was the, t- the church age. That's us. And that's where we are. And until that fullness comes in, and once it comes in, then he goes back and he's going to move on and deal with Israel, the nation again. To finish up that last 70th week. He's done 69. He's got one more to go. Isn't it awesome, though, once you realize there's times and phrase, uh, times and places in history where God is dealing with specific uh, agendas. He keeps talking over and over in Scripture that the appointed time and what has been decreed, right? He has certain things that are decreed for different people groups and different times in history. And he says, and when when the time comes and when the appointed time comes, Jesus did it. When he was on the earth, it's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. Then it came his time. He says, now my time has come that the son of man shall be lifted up. And then comes the end, right? So during the tribulation, there's going to be a witnessing to who? All Israel in particular. He's dealing with bringing in Israel. Now, along the way, will he be saving other people who are not Jewish? Absolutely. If they will be saved, he will. There is always opportunity with God because he loves all men and he desires that all men be saved. But the specific agenda of those seven years is for Israel, the nation. If that hasn't become ultra clear to you in this study of Daniel, then you need to go back and start at Daniel homework day one, (laughs) lesson one, and do it all again. Because the second time through, we probably then would get it really honed in there clearly. But most of you, I think, have got it. I think you all are figuring this out really well. You have to have correct doctrines. Your doctrines are built by what you believe is true about the word of God. If you believe the word of God is inerrant and is God-breathed, which is what precept ministries, all of our teaching is based on that premise, then you can begin to build good doctrines. And if you don't have that, you're you're already have one foot in the grave because you're going to end up with some wrong uh, understandings. Okay, and that's not to say that I can't get something wrong, but I can promise you it would it won't be because I didn't try to do it right. <laughs> and also, it's kind of like with myself and other teachers as I listen to a lot of other teachers online. Sometimes there's one little thing that they'll say, "I'll go, I don't agree with that." But everything else they say, I like. <laughs> so you just give grace. And you, as long as it's not a doctrinal issue of salvation, then you, you can just set it aside and move on. I was uh, visited my daughter's church yesterday in San Antonio. And, and uh, he was preaching on Daniel. And, oh, and nice. Yeah, yeah, so really You're going, funny. yes, I know this. <laughs> I mean, he was preaching about the love of Daniel. But, but, but he was talking about how people sometimes text him or email him and saying, what do you think about the LGBT or what do you think about homosexuals? What do you think about and and he he went on and said a lot of that that my opinion doesn't matter. It it you know what I think I'm you know I'm just a person. Mm-hmm. I, it doesn't matter. I have you know I could be crazy or whatever. It's God's word. And 
and he gives them the scripture right that relates to and right said right everything you know gave scriptures to everything very good I mean, I thought very thought, good. Yeah, well, and here's what needs to be said in our day. It does. Absolutely. Well, it, another point that was brought out on this panel discussion, though, was pulling scripture out of context and saying things that it doesn't actually mean. So this is where the responsibility is for the individual believer to uh, to not be willfully ignorant about things. We need to we need to apply ourselves seriously enough to understanding the word of God so that when we hear wrong doctrine or wrong statements, we pick up on them. Yeah. And then we at the time that we hear them have to determine is this person just making a slip of the tongue or an error in thinking, you know, sometimes I call Moses Noah. I don't mean it, right? But I do it. Or, or are the, is their doctrine wrong? And do you need to just simply turn the TV off? There are people I do that with. There was one guy I was listening to recently and it was an in time teaching thing. And he, he was, I don't know what planet he was on, but I just turned him off. I just said, I'm not even going to get any of that in my head because it's right away. I knew his, his, his doctrine was an error. You need to be able to know enough. And I, at this point with having done Daniel, you're there. You know enough now. When we even go into Revelation, I don't think you're really going to have as much trouble as you think you are. It, the issue is always so much symbolism and there's so much that has to be physically drawn out and timeline that it's time consuming. So just be prepared for that in your mind mentally. But beyond that, I think the rest of it, because you've done Daniel and you've got the major, what uh, Precept always calls Daniel is the skeletal frame. It's the, it's the skeleton of your body. All you're doing now is uh, we're filling in the toes. We're putting meat on the bones for those feet because that's where we are in things when we get to Revelation. Okay, so now what I want to do is cover one thing with you that probably, I'm well, I'm pretty sure it was not in your homework, but... I want to start there because when you're when we're talking about the church and what's coming concerning when we're looking at Daniel 70th week and then after the return of Christ and those difficult passages, um, they were asking me, are you going to cover the 1,335 days and the 1,290 days, which don't match with the 1,260 days, right? And that is a, a confusing statement in there. Um, so what I want to do, though, is start with this passage in Thessalonians. Go to 2 Thess Thessalonians 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Just to kind of lay a foundation down about us, the church, um, at Jesus' coming. Now, there is a distinction in Scripture between the second coming and his coming for his church. And boy, is that complicated when you don't realize that. So you have to begin to mark your Bible in a, in a distinctive way, a distinction about his coming. Which coming is it speaking of? Is it speaking of his coming for us, the church? Or is it speaking of his second coming at the end of the age? When his feet touch ground, he sets up his millennial kingdom, right? So, we're gonna, so here we see the church in 2 Thessalonians. This was a church... Um, that, that was brand new birth, Thessalonica, okay, uh, in Greece. Paul writes a letter to them and he says, you remember I was telling you these things? When Paul birthed that church, one of the first things he did was teach them eschatology. He taught them about the second coming of Christ and about 
our gate being gathered together to him, which is a distinctive time, the rapture. Because one of the huge uh, contentions in that particular day was uh, the argument about whether there's a physical resurrection or not, a physical bodily resurrection. Remember Sadducees and Pharisees had a split on that and Jesus even used that to his advantage at one point and caused a real ruckus, right? <laughs> and so he taught these things to the early church very early on that there is a physical resurrection. So this is where he's at in, in the church. He says, this is the church, um, Someone, before we go into the second Thessalonians, I need one person to look up for me. Um, Revelation 19, 14. And I'm going to tell you, just so you know where you're at in the timeline, this is the seventh bowl. This is the very, very tail end of those seven years. Where This is the very last bowl that is going to be poured out. And Jesus comes at that time. And in 1914, what does it say there? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Yeah. Okay. Now we've talked about the the host a lot in this. The host of this and the host of that. And the host is what? By definition, it's an army, right? And in this case here, it says, "And the armies of heaven are who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean." Can anybody guess who that would be? That's us. That's us, the church. Now, if Jesus at the seventh bowl, at the very tail end of the seven years, he's coming and who's following him? We are. Where does that mean we're coming from? Heaven. Where does that mean we have not been? We, well, yeah, we have not been in those years of tribulation. We've been with Jesus somewhere else, right? in heaven because when he comes from heaven and when you drop down to verse 19 i think it is or no it's uh 1911 it speaks about jesus the clouds open right is that what it says what does it say because that's really cool i saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages Okay, so in 1911 of Revelation, Jesus comes and it says he's on a white horse and he comes to judge and to wage war. That is that very last battle uh, of Armageddon and of the the crushing, basically, of the nations, the treading of the great of the grapes of wrath, right, of God. And so then in 14, it follows on to say, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. So he's on a white horse. We're on white horses. We're following him when he comes. That means we were not here. So at least that much we can agree on, right? The armies. And it says, where were we? In heaven. which are in heaven and i'm going to skip all that followed him and that's in 1914 that's at at his coming the armies which are in heaven follow him so when he comes we come with him all right so i i think that's a good foundation to start with now let's go back to that thessalonians 2 
uh, verses 1 through 12. And all we want to do is just kind of get an idea of what it is that this church was having a problem with. What does it say in verse 1? Yeah. What was their problem? Some were told that um, that had already happened. Yes. Some were being told that his coming had already happened. Are we having that same kind of conversation even yet today? Some people are saying, well, no, that's already happened. This has already happened. We're already in that time. The, the, the kingdom of God has come. No, there's no millennial reign. No, the, Israel is not the focus of that conversation. It's the church because Israel rejected him. and They crucified him. So now it's the church. And I mean, look at all the lies that are out there. This church amid being filled with lies too. And Paul writes back to them and says, now listen, I request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it were from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what is he saying has not come? The day of the Lord. What do we understand the day of the Lord is? that last time frame when he's dealing with Israel during those tribulation days, okay? He says, so now let no one in any way deceive you for it, it what? The day of the Lord, it will not come unless what happens? So what has to happen first? At, yeah, okay, so now regarding... We're in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2... This is verse one regarding the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. I'm just going to put a cross there to make it easy. And our gathering together to him. Yes, we are speaking of the rapture, but because here's what happens is it tells us now the day of the Lord will not come unless what? Okay, the day of the Lord will not come unless, number one, the apostasy comes first. That's in verse 3. Now, if you want to read a little bit more on that, in 1 Timothy 4.1, it's talking about in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith and some will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Where have we read about a time when there's going to be these kinds of false doctrines and the, and the, uh, the uh, doctrines of demons that are going to be preached? Yeah. And what have we looked at for this study of Daniel? We went to Revelation, right? Do you remember chapter 13? Who was there? Satan was there and his false prophet. And what does the false prophet do? He teaches false doctrines and he causes the people to take a mark and to worship this. Okay, so that's what 1 Peter 4.1 is talking about. In the latter times, some will fall away from the faith and some will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And when we get into Revelation, you're going to see a lot more of that. There's going to be three spirits that come out. It's pretty, it's very graphic. Anyway, so the day of the Lord is going to, not going to come until the apostasy comes first and... Number two, what happens? 
and then that man of lawlessness will be revealed. But what's going to happen then, uh, number two? Go all the way down to seven. What's happening right now that prevents us from knowing that the day of the Lord is here? What is? How do we know the day of the Lord is not here? Because remember, he's writing this to give them assurance and not to be deceived. So whatever it is, he wants them to know, as long as you are seeing this and are aware of this, you can be assured that this this man of lawlessness has not yet appeared. And what is, there's a restrainer here. And, and he has to be what? Taken out of the way. And then what happens in verse 8? Then what? Then the lawless one will be revealed. So there is a restraining that's taking place right now. So the restrainer has to be removed. And then it says, then uh, the lawless one will be revealed. Now, this is really interesting because we get two more titles for this end time king. We've talked about the end time king. We've called him the beast. Uh, what else have we called him? Mm, I'm trying to remember. In, no, that's the Antiochus Epiphany. He's the, the little horn. Yes. Okay. The little horn. Right. Here now he's called that lawless one will be revealed, the son of destruction. So we get, we get two more titles for us. Then um, that lawless one will be, will be revealed. Okay, so that's in verse eight of Second Thessalonians. Okay, Second Thess chapter two. And if you want to just say one through 12, it gives you the totality. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that because we're not studying Thessalonians yet. We will, though, eventually. But what I'm saying to you is what this is showing to you and I is that this man of lawlessness is not going to be revealed until this restrainer is removed. And how you view what this restrainer is, whatever you think of it as, it's something that obviously is supposed to be obvious to us that it's still here. And once it's removed, then we'll know that the, the lawless one can be revealed. Until that restrainer is, is taken out of the way, though, you and I can be rest assured the day of the Lord is not here yet. Because that's the confidence and the comfort that Paul was giving to this church. He was saying, look, you can, do not be dismayed. Do not be deceived. I want you to know it's not going to happen until that restrainer is removed. There, uh, there's an apostasy that will come first. We'll talk about that later. And there's going to be a restrainer that must be removed. Those are visible things that you and I can know for sure about that will tell us we're not in the day of the Lord yet. Then that man is going to come. So if you see the restrainer being removed as being something that pertains to us, because they were thinking this had already happened and they were on this side of it. And, and he's saying, no, these things have to happen first. And if these things have happened, then he will come. Okay. So that, that's just kind of a foundational piece to understanding the church in reference to everything that we're looking at concerning that end time king. That end time king, we, we are going to see these things happen first before he shows up. And we're not going to be here when he shows up. All right. Um. It goes on to say he's the one who opposes and exalts himself 
above every so-called God. Does that sound familiar? What did we see in Daniel 11, those, those last verses, uh, uh, 36 to 45? Right, exactly. He doesn't, he doesn't honor any of those gods. He exalts himself above them all. Any other kind of God he doesn't worship, the desire of women he doesn't honor, he, the, the uh, gods of fortresses he doesn't honor, the gods of his fathers he doesn't honor. Why? Because he magnifies himself as God above them all. Okay, and so he says he's above every so-called God or object of worship. So having read that and having already done what we've done in Daniel, do these line up? Yes. Do you see how you're, when you learn your, quali your qualifiers, when you learn your identifying markers about things, that's when you're able to say, yes, I'm comparing apples with apples. You now have dropped into 2 Thessalonians and just by looking at this, understanding it's the day of the Lord, that's the end of the age, understanding that he's called the lawless one. <laughs> he tries to make alterations in times and in law right? That lawless one will be revealed. The son of destruction. Remember on the wings of abomination comes one who makes desolate. Same qualifying markers, same identifying qualities. He exalts and exposes himself above every so-called God. So the one who is coming is, in, is also this. It goes on in 13, also 9. He says, it's in accord with the activity of Satan. Well, there you are in Revelation 12 and 13 who gives him his power to the beast, the Satan does. He comes with power, signs, and false wonders. There you go, chapter 13 of Revelation. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. So they will be deceived, but guess what? We won't be. We won't be deceived. Why? We won't be here. <laughs> but he will be revealed in his time. Okay, so that kind of takes you back to a little bit about the church. Now let's, when we looked at Daniel 9, and I, I think I might even kind of skip part of this writing down part, but we looked at Daniel 9, 24 to 27. We saw that timeline. I can do just do a real simple timeline. We had Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, help me out, Greece, and then Rome. And at the time of Rome, we have Christ. We have the birthing of the the church but before that we had a, a temple a jewish temple right that okay so and then we're going to have this time of the end of time times and half a time but it's a one week right so what happened was from this time until this time how many weeks were accomplished from the issuing according to our daniel prophecy from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that all together? 69 weeks. So we have the 69 weeks here. And that was accomplished right here at Jesus's triumphal entry, right? And Jesus makes his statement saying, if you'd only known in the, the time in which it I would come, right? If you'd only paid attention to Daniel and what was written. And then it says, and then the Messiah will be cut off. How is the Messiah cut off? Crucifixion. So we have the cross. So he, he arrives. Then we have the cross. Then it says, then the people of the prince who is to come will do what? 
that's right, destroy the city and the, and the sanctuary or the temple, right? So that, and when did that happen? 70 AD, okay? Then, then we see that the church age is where we're at. Now, this is what we call the gap in time, right, that we had on the board last week. We're living in that church age, and until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, right, then all Israel shall be saved. So the then all, all Israel shall be saved falls right in here. And this, how much time is left if we've already accomplished 69 weeks, and there are 70 weeks of his prophecy? One week. <laughs> Seven years. For a time, times, and a half a time, which can't fill, fill in there because it's too big which is three and a half years for each of these halves. Three and a half here and three and a half here, right? Total of seven years. So that lays out Daniel's 70 weeks. Then we saw in Daniel 11, which we've already talked in detail about, but we see that end time king in Daniel um, 11, 36 to 40. This again is... Uh, in time, king, right? We call him Antichrist. What, but what has Daniel referred to him as in Daniel 7? That little horn. Antichrist, little horn. And that's in Daniel 7, right? I don't remember the verse off the top of my head, but it's it's there. Okay, and this end time king, the things that he is going to do, how did we see him in, in 1136 to 40? He's going to exalt himself. Um, above every God. Uh, and magnifies himself above them all. So you can go on and make that whole list on your own. We did it last week, so I'm not going to do it again. That's just redundancy, and I don't think we need to do that. So now what we want to do, I think, for the rest of our time, though, is address that issue that um, I think it was Michelle that brought it up, the question about what about those extra times, those extra days. Kay had us do some looking into several verses, and I added a few in, so... We probably won't get to all of them, but we'll cover as much as we have time for. Okay. Um, let's see, did I make that list? I didn't. Let me go back and find this spot, though. He says in Daniel 12, I'm going to start my list off in order to help Michelle out. I'm going to put it over here because I want to leave that for some of the other things. But in Daniel 12, Um, he's speaking to Daniel about all these things that he's seen in these visions. He's speaking of all of them in totality, truthfully, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, right? Chapter 10, 11, 12, which is one, one complete uh, time frame. He says, um, I heard the man dressed in linen in verse seven of 12, who was above the waters of the river and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a times times and half a time 
The question was, how long will these horrible things that you're explaining to me, how long are they going to be going on? And he said, for a time, times and half a time. So the time, the things that he specifically was addressing were these last was this time frame right here at the very end, the last three and a half years, which is a time, times and half a time. And then he says, and as soon as they, they, the Antichrist, they, those kings of that last time kingdom who are aggressive against Israel, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So again, we're looking at a time, a dispensation in time when God has an agenda. The agenda is to allow Israel the, to have the, the, shattering of the power of the holy people to be completed he wants to shatter their power if you go back also to daniel 9 verse 24 it gives a list of all the things that have to be done before it's all completed remember okay so he says but as for me i heard but i could not understand why do you think daniel couldn't understand all this even though he'd been told so much why couldn't he understand well, where was he on this time frame? He's all the way back here. He's not getting all of this. Greece hasn't happened and there was all this stuff in chapter 11 we now have as completed history. We still struggle over, right? But it hadn't even come on the scene yet. And he's going, I don't get it, right? Rome hadn't happened. The, the 70 AD and the falling of the, the temple hadn't happened. They hadn't even rebuilt the temple yet. They were in the process of getting back over there to do all that work. But he's all the way back here in the Medo-Persian Empire in the, what, I think it was the third year of the reign when he has this vision. And he's, and, he, and he's told about the 69 weeks and the one week, but he didn't get it. Why? It's all future. Okay. I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. In other words, until the end time approaches, it's going to be really hard for you to fully grasp it. As a matter of fact, we're living in those very end times when almost all of this has been fulfilled. We're all the way right here in this time of gap waiting, just waiting and watching for that last little trigger to see this apostasy come and this restrainer to be removed so that God will accomplish and bring about this man of lawlessness to bring about the crushing or the shattering of the power of the holy people. He has to accomplish that. Then he says, many will be uh, purged, purified, and refined. Now, how do you think Daniel felt about that statement? I think the purging might have bothered him a little, right? But what about the purified and refined? That's kind of cool. He says, but the wicked will act wickedly, but none of the wicked will understand. And then he says, but... Now, here's, I think, a key thing, uh, Michelle, in particular, in talking to you on this one. I think this next part of this after the but is kind of the trigger that explains to you the rest of these time references. He says, but those who have insight will understand. Daniel, you're not understanding. Why? Because it's future and you still don't yet know it. Guess what? You, the church, you may not fully understand it either. But when that time comes and they're in it, as it's approaching, guess what? Those who have insight, what? Will understand. You and I may not get it yet. Daniel didn't get it, some of this stuff either. There was a lot of this Daniel simply didn't get. We're only getting it because it's now fulfilled history. 
does that really make better sense? So he's, he says in Daniel 12, those at, in other words, at the end, at the end time, that's your qualifier. Those who have insight will understand. And then he lists some things that they're going to understand. That, by the way, we still don't understand. He said, from the time, because he's already told them, how long will it be? And he said, it's going to be a time, times and a half a time. That falls squarely in that three and a half years he's already given us. But now he's giving us some extra time. And he's not going on to expound on it. There's not another vision to give us more insight about it. He just leaves it there. But what he did do was already tell you at that end time, those who have insight, they will understand. So it's obviously not for you and I to fully understand yet. And it's not necessary. We don't need it. It's not going to be beneficial to help us prepare for his coming, to be prepared to share the gospel, to get people saved before this horrible day occurs. But what he's saying is some things you only really fully understand after it happens. That's why you and I understand so much. We feel so smart. We feel so proud of ourselves. See, Daniel didn't get it, but I do. Right? Da <laughs> but you think about it. Poor Daniel. He's all the way back here in the Medo Persian Empire. No wonder he didn't understand all this, right? We now do. We get it because we're all the way up here in the gap. We're in the time of the church and we've got it. He says, so from the, the, uh, from that, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be, so he's going to add some extra days. There's going to be 1,290 days. So he's adding an additional 30 days on, but he's not telling us what those extra 30 days are about. Those who will understand, number one, um, there will be 1,290 days. So what you can figure is 1,260 takes you up to here, right? To the very end of that one week we're we're talking what 30 days into so we're talking 30 days after the one week is done that's just a side note for you to keep perspective on that then he says how blessed um is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Blessed is he who attains to the 1,335 days. And how many more days is that? 45. Plus 45 days. So first he mentions an extra 30 days, then he mentions an extra 45 days. Why do you think he separates those two? We don't know. There's obviously there's something different. Something's going to happen in the first 30 days, and then he's going to add another 15 to do something else, right? It's kind of like what happened here. 69 weeks, it was seven weeks plus 62 weeks. Now, we know it totals 69, but what happened in the seven weeks? Do you remember what had to what had to be rebuilt? 
the temple and the city, the city and the with moat and plaza, right? Okay, and then it and then it said, once that time is done, then until Messiah the Prince is another sixty-two weeks. So you get a total of sixty-nine weeks if you count from the issuing of this decree until Messiah the Prince. Sixty-nine weeks are done, but he broke it up here just like he's breaking this up here. But he's not explaining. Apparently, there's something specific that's going to happen in the first 30 days and something else specific in the next 15. But we don't know what that is. It isn't explained to us. Who's going to understand it? <laughs> Those who have insight at the end time, this is the qualifier, at the end time, they will have, they will understand. Does that make you feel better about it? At least you could get, okay, I get it now. We aren't going to understand it, just like Daniel did. And he told Daniel, literally, seal it up and conceal it until the end time for these things pertain to uh, days of future. For you and I, though, we're in those days future. We have already seen all this accomplished. We're all the way here. There are things now that we need to be paying attention to. So now comes the fun part of our, of our discussion. And we don't, we've got a full half an hour to do this, so it won't, it won't be a problem at all. Um, Kay gave you some verses to go look up concerning things that are going to happen, things that have been at least uh, um, hinted at that are going to be taking place during that last time frame. So he tells Daniel, go your way. Okay. Oh, here's my, my chart that I just gave you. <laughs> it's on here. <laughs> I knew I did it. <laughs> okay. What might these extra days be beyond the time times and half a time, right? Um, Matthew 25, she had us look up. That was in 31. Okay, so Matthew 25. And I just want to say there are some times when I think there's a little bit of confusion about whether we're talking about the millennial time or the new heaven and new earth time. Don't worry about that for right now. We'll just merge it all together. We'll, we'll try to split hairs on that later. But she's simply saying there are some, some specific things that are going to happen once Jesus returns for the millennial reign for those 1,000 years. What do we see happen in Matthew 25? Yeah. He separates the sheep from the goats. My writing is getting so bad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a hurry and I'm having a hard time making my brain slow down. Uh, what, did, what happens with the sheep? They, they inherit the kingdom, right? Prepared for them. And if you're speaking of the physical millennial kingdom, that's the 1,000 years. If you're speaking of eternity, then you're, it's the new heaven and the new earth. But both are true, right? So the sheep inherit the kingdom. We'll just make it generic so that it, it works either way. Okay. All right, that was in Matthew 25. And what happens with the goats? 
eternal punishment, right? We do know that during that time, we're going to come to learn a term, uh, the, the grapes of wrath or the treading of the grapes, right? Um, all that's going to happen during those seven years, in particular, once Jesus comes in that seventh uh, bowl and he comes to wage war, he's going to crush and, and kill a lot of people, right? Those people are going to go to into their eternal destination if they have refused to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So it could be alluding to that, but that happens during the seventh bowl, not after. So they're kind of merging a lot of things in one. They're not trying to timeline it. They're just saying these are these are the basic concepts that are happening. There are going to be sheep and there are going to be goats. There's going to be a time of separating them. We know that we come with him, but we also know there are some here and we haven't studied it yet. But there are still some here on the earth we call tribulation saints who are going to have come into faith, had the Holy Spirit poured out upon them, and he is going to now come to save all Israel, right? And so there's going to be work that has to be done, obviously. What else do we see? Uh, Revelation 20. You looked at verse 4, and I want to add 6 on there because I think it, it adds to it also. Right. Okay. So we have Satan and beast thrown. Well, Satan is bound into the abyss. He's not in, into the lake into of fire. abyss. Oh, okay. Abyss and, and uh, lake of fire. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to get. Yeah. Because we are going to study all this more carefully, but we see these two entities are handled, the beast and Satan, right? One will get put into an abyss for a thousand years. The other one is going to be thrown into a lake of fire, okay? What else? In verse 4, 20 verse 4, what? Yeah, it says, and they will sit on thrones and judgment is given to them. And if you track that back, who is the they and them? Well, you really have to go all the way back to Revelation 19, verse 14. And who is it that comes behind with Jesus? I mean, if you're just structuring the flow of thought here, he has told you that the armies of heaven, right, are going to come with him. Who's the armies of heaven? We, the church, and we come with him. And it's going to go on and talk about also who else is going to sit on thrones. That's right. Tribulation saints. So the saints who come with him and the tribulation saints are going to now do what? Are going to rule and reign. So apparently we're going to have to be put in positions of ruling and reigning and, and actually uh, either a, a ceremony takes place or some, I mean, certainly we don't all just stand around going, well, what am I supposed to do now? Right. <laughs> I don't know what to do, Lord. There's going to be a, t when you read through the scriptures about any King that comes in to establish his kingdom, there's a period. Remember, even in Daniel, we saw this where he sets up his rule. Remember when Darius comes in and he sets up his rule and he says, he had satraps and, I can't remember what the others, and commanders and all these different people, right? And then 
Daniel got uh, elevated to a higher position, was excelling above them, and they got mad at him, and they tried to get him killed, right? But that time frame that's discussed in there is that king coming to his throne and setting up his kingdom. So what do you think happens when Jesus comes? He's setting up a kingdom, right? So Satan and the beast is going to be taken care of, and then also... Um, yeah, and it's, I'm just going to put saints in general because it's both. Saints will uh, sit on thrones. Now, the fact that it says sit on thrones, what, what kind of, does that trigger any thinking for you? Well, it says in judgment was given to us. Okay. Okay, where do you find that one from? Okay. Okay. So there's another reference is first Corinthians. Hold on a second. Here it is. Yeah. First Corinthians six, two and three. And it says there that um, the saints will judge. And who do they judge? The world. And number two, angels. Okay. But all but that's not the only thing they do when it's speaking of judgment, because how long is Jesus's kingdom on this earth going to be for? A thousand years. So how long are we going to sit on thrones and do this judging? A thousand years. Do you think we're all going to be hanging out on the same throne in the same city at the same place? So what does that mean? Yeah, we're going to have to be placed in our assignment, does it just make sense? There's going to be some logistical movement that has to take place. Whether Jesus tells us before, when he gives us our rewards, when we go before the Bema seat, which we haven't even addressed yet, but maybe at that time he even tells us, you're going to be here, you're going to be here, you're going to be here. I don't know. But when you're thinking about these extra days of 1,290 and 1,335, it could be that some of the logistical setting up of God's kingdom on earth will encompass some of those time frames. We're just guessing at this because the scripture does not tell us clearly. Remember in first and second Kings and Chronicles, there was always, once the king came on his throne, there was always that period of when he set that. Throne. That's right. That's what we just, that's what I just said. And that's what we saw even with Darius when he set up his and he had all these logistical things he had to get into place. He had certain people put in certain places, right? Okay, so that's in, in and then you, we looked in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And this is a parable that Jesus is, is teaching, right? And it's a parable of talents. And what do we see there? What is the inference that it's speaking of? Because literally Jesus is speaking about his going away and coming back. And when he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to give rewards. And who's he giving rewards to? That's right. The ones that ended up being faithful, right? They were to the good and faithful servants. He puts them in charge of something, right? Cities or other responsibility. It doesn't say what, 
but he literally in a parable says that when he returns, some of us are going to be put in charge of certain things. I probably get the kitchen and mopping floors. I'm good with that. You know, I'm close. The orchard. There you go. Yeah. Where the apples and oranges are. Yes. I love that. Okay. So, uh, we're going to, uh, what did I say? Um, put in charge. It just says of many things. So I don't know what that means. Right. That tells you it's broad. Some get the sewing room, some get the nurseries, some get. But it seems to be connected to what we have done. Our reward is connected, our reaping. Well, he just says, if you're faithful with what I did give you, then I will put you in charge of, of other things and more things. It may be related. It may not be related. It doesn't exactly tell us. But I do know this. God gifted each of us with talents, right? Mm -hmm. Personalities and all that stays with us. I love that. There's a verse uh, in uh, Revelation where the souls are beneath the altar and they cry out, how, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood, right? And I, I always thought to myself, well, that's very interesting because what that tells you, if you examine that statement, is that those who have died and are now before the, the altar in heaven, they remember their lives. They still have personalities. In other words, you know, all those apostles, they're all sitting together having coffee and talking and, right? I mean, besides just praising God and singing all day, they are... They are still engaged in conversation with one another and there's, there's relationship going on, but they remember. So they take with them their, their remembrances, which I think is interesting. So if that's all true, our personality remembrances remain, and it sounds like it does. And in this case, they're wanting to know when they're going to get revenge, you know, God's, God's revenge, a righteous revenge for evil that was done. Um, if they know that, then I think that probably rewards are be divvied out to each of us according to what God skilled us to do, what our personalities are, how God designed us, right? So if you don't like crying babies, you won't go into the nursery. Okay. All right. What else do we see? Let's. Okay. Luke 19, I'm not going to write it down, but it's basically the same thing, right? Parable of the Minas. After returning from a distant country, right? And receiving the kingdom to himself. Boy, is this a great parable. If you think of it as literal of Jesus having gone to heaven and now he's coming back and he's receiving it. It goes right in line with Daniel chapter 7 where it says he, he approaches the throne of God and God gives him a, a throne and a power and authority, right? And all the peoples of the earth will worship him. So here it says, and I receives that kingdom to himself. And then he ordered that the slaves be called to him. And then what? Basically, it's exactly what happened in the other one in uh, Matthew 25. What happens? Those who are faithful, are put in charge again. So these are concepts you can be just mulling around in your mind when you consider those extra days that are told to us, but without explanation. What about rewards? She does talk about rewards here for us just a little bit. It's going to be fun when we do the revelation course, because in those letters to the churches, the overcomers are given some very specific rewards. It's very exciting to study what those all are. Matthew 16, 27, what are the rewards there? 
man according to his deeds. Yeah, according to his deeds. Do you remember when I read to you guys a couple weeks back the Romans, was it two, where it says God's impartial, right? And to those who seek for good, then they get the, they get eternal life. And for those who seek for evil, then they go into eternal destruction. But basically, he rewards each man according to his deeds. Now, that's speaking specifically about salvation. But the concept still moves forward into the Christian life after you are, are born again and then through the process of sanctification. He's saying, look, if you're faithful with the few things I give you, I'm going to reward you with others. You're going to be repaid every man according to his deeds. Right. Uh, Luke 6.23 It's a real generic statement. What is it? The reward is great in heaven. Yep. It's going to be great in heaven, whatever it is. Yeah. I haven't leaped for joy in persecution. Have any of you? I can't say I have either. I think maybe it has to be that in hindsight, if because those who are truly gods, what do you do when persecution comes? You just endure it. You, it's kind of like Cliff when you were sick. You can't do anything but endure, right? I mean, what's your other option? As a believer, I don't think we have another option either. We just simply endure. And I like what and, Jesus said in the Mark or Matthew that we studied. Jesus said, don't worry about what, what you're to say in that day because I'm going to give you the word. That's right, right. So that's comforting. I just lo I, I love, I love the whole concept, though, that you will endure. That's why later you'll leap for joy about it. You may not leap for joy at the moment, but later it reaps a harvest of righteousness for you. Okay, what about 2 John 8? Here's a warning for us. I just said, careful how you handle God's gift so that we might receive a full reward. Yeah, what does that tell you about rewards? We're not doing an in-depth study on this, but what does that tell you about rewards for the believer? You can lose some of them, yeah, or all of it. There may be a test or a trial that you go through, and instead of persevering through it, you fail it, and therefore you lose the reward of having endured if you don't endure. So it's a warning. Um, Revelation eleven eighteen. This again is at the seventh trumpet. This is what this is giving a, a kind of an overview or a, or a projective view of Christ's uh, reign that's foreseen basically here in this particular reference, Revelation 11. And what does he say? At judgment, God rewards those who fear his name. Mm -hmm. I like the where it says, and the time came. Yeah, the time came to reward, to judge them, but also to reward your bond servants and to destroy those who, what? Destroy the earth. Yeah, interesting. That's in, uh, so again, there's going to be a time apparently when Christ returns and he comes to the earth. These bond servants are not speaking about you and me, but these are speaking about those tribulation saints, right? who have not yet gone before the, the Bema seat of Christ, they're going to have to go through a period of being judged for their works and so forth. We've already done that when we got raptured uh, up, but they won't have had that time yet. Now they're going to be judged. So, okay, we're at the end. Um, thank you. <laughs> She's my time clock. I love that. 
Revelation 22 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And what? To? According to what he has done. Yes. Okay. So, honestly, I feel like we covered so much of the possibilities. And we only touched on it. I, I also remember... I keep mentioning it to you, but those last few chapters of Ezekiel, if you go back and read those, he's talking about that time when in the millennial reign, he's going to have his temple established. Don't forget, there's going to be a temple, a millennial temple. So there's going to be a time frame when that temple is being set up and established. Things are being purified and right, uh, sanctified or whatever has to be done. There's going to be uh, people put in place. I think it's interesting because he talks about the ones who were not faithful and how he's going to give them basically a lesser job. It falls right in line with what we just looked at. Those who are faithful, he's going to give more, but you can lose a reward. You could go down. And the, first shall, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those kind of concepts are going to also take place during that time. It may be a surprise to us where we land, you know? Um, but he, we see in Ezekiel, he talks about the temple being set up. He talks about um, there's going to be, um, oh, let me see if I've got it here. That's right. All that sacrificial system stuff's got to be done. Yeah. Here. Yeah, they are. Um, this again is where he says, my holy name, I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel. That's what God's going to do in that day. And he says, and I will uh, not let my holy name be profaned anymore. We've, I've read this over and over to you guys. And the, no, the nations will know that I am the Lord, the holy one in Israel. Um, talks about for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So there's going to be beyond even these days that are mentioned to us. There's here it says there's a seven month period of time at the end of when when the at, it's going to be yes. It's argued as to where that happens, but in this flow of thought in Ezekiel, it places it after the Lord comes back and cleanses the land and puts Himself in there, and He begins to rule and reign, and His name is no longer profaned in the land. And then it says, "For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land." So, I, I mean, there's a, we don't know. I mean, there is again more argument about what is yet future. We're still fuzzy on, and it's okay. I, you know, in a way, I don't know, Michelle, does, did that help you at all? Okay, because, yeah, good. She gave me a thumbs up. Um, I feel like this statement here that he gave us, those who will have insight will understand. Once I put that in line with a list of these two things that followed that statement, this made so much more sense for what was said here that we really don't understand because he gave us no more. If we had another vision, we might have gotten more insight. But he stopped there. He said, oh, enough. You've got enough. That's all you need to know for now. The, the rest of it, you're going to walk by faith. You're going to, and, and the New Testament does cover quite a bit more. We're going to get more information when we move into the New Testament references, when we do Revelation. But we don't ever, there's never another re reference to those dates, those extra days. 
that are given to us. So we don't know for sure. I guess the logic is it has to, it has something to do with Jesus setting up his kingdom. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. We finished Daniel. That was lovely. Yay. <laughs> nice.